made, the first cell that splits, is that that develops the womb and that that develops the throat. It's made of the same tissue. So our ability to speak our authentic truth and speak up and all of this is directly connected to our relationship with our creativity, with our sensuality, with our feelings of safety, security, and, and our desires and our passion, right? Welcome to the 1000 Days Sober Podcast. My name is Lee Davey. I'm not an alcoholic. I refuse to be anonymous. I am someone that doesn't drink alcohol. And I spend every single moment of my life helping other people do the same. Like right now. So what's been going on, folks? <sighs> I was on my sick bed yesterday. I was on my sick bed yesterday. And um, got me thinking about life. You know, I, I think I, I think I look after myself. I think I try to do the right things. I think I try to eat well. I think I try to um, live an addiction-free lifestyle to come from above the line, from a place of presence and stuff like that, right? And I think I'm doing a really good job. But then when all of a sudden something gets inside your body and knocks you for fucking six, and it wasn't COVID because I went for a test and I was um, I was negative, uh, and you cannot get out of bed, then, oh, that is a problem, right? Because all of a sudden, in that moment, you realize that actually, without my health, I am nothing. I am nada, everything. Like, I cannot be a father without my health. I cannot be a husband without my health. I cannot be a friend without my health. I cannot be a leader, an employer, or a business owner, uh, and a community creator without my health. I cannot be any, I can't do anything. So we all know that our health has to come first, but are we really doing everything we can in our power to keep us tip fucking top? No. Recently, I think I might share this with you. I, I read True Purpose by Tim Kelly, and he asked the question, if I only had a year to live, what would I? What would you do? And I answered that question by saying I'd spend more time with Liza, with Zia, with Jude, doing experiences, and I would uh, take risks to grow 1,000 Days Sober so I could realize and see it hit massive numbers of people before I pop my clogs. And then I said to myself, well, why aren't I doing those things now? And that changed everything, changed everything. It, it, it made me smash through my upper limits and go to places I'd never gone before. I'm just about to do that with my health as well. I have to do that with my health as well. There are upper limits that we are afraid to go beyond in order for us to be as tip-top health-wise as we could be, physically, mentally, and spiritually, okay? And I think my biggest one, my biggest upper, my biggest upper limit is the story that if I really do put health first, that 1,000 days sober will deteriorate because I won't be spending enough time working on it and helping other people. But it's it's a story. It's a story created by resistance that forces me into another addiction, which is work, forces me into an addiction of work, therefore ignoring the fact that I have to do X, Y, Z in order for me to look after my health. And doing X, Y, Z in order for me to look after my health is painful. You have to go through some suffering. And part of that pain, a part of that suffering is I can't work. I can't sit down and work. I can't sit down and do these podcasts. I can't sit down and create more content, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. But it's all for nothing if you can't look after your health. Think about your decision to drink alcohol, for example, 
right? We say things like, um, well, I'm drinking alcohol because it cures my boredom, or I'm drinking alcohol because it, it eliminates my stress and my anxiety, or I'm, I'm stopping alcohol because it stops my racing thoughts, and on and on and on. <laughs> but it's all bullshit because at the end of the day, it's fucking killing you, and it's killing your life, and it's killing your relationships. It's deadening you, right? So... Now, more than ever, baby, is a time for you to say no more. I'm done with this shit. I'm done with it. Okay? Two things going on in 1,000 Days Sober Towers that wouldn't be going on if I couldn't get off my deathbed. Uh, one, new concept they're going to bring to you shortly um, around, you know, there's a lot of you out there that um, might be scared, a bit frightened of 1,000 Days Sober and we did that deliberately. We wanted to distance ourselves from other people. And we wanted to attract people who were fucking serious, hardcore. I don't want to ever drink forever and ever our men. But there are a lot of people out there, most people, who really don't want to give up drinking forever. And I've realized just recently that your relationship with alcohol is no different than your relationship with the person you spend most of your time with or you sleep with, right? Like I was in a relationship for over 20 years. I was that was part of that 15 years of that was a marriage. And you know, even though it towards the end it became toxic for both of us and it was very damaging to both of us, I wouldn't leave it because I was afraid. So why would alcohol be any different? If you're in a relationship with alcohol for 20, 30, 40 years, why would it be any different? You'd be terrified to leave it because your best buds, your lovers, your your, you know, you're in bed together, your that that bottle knows every intimate detail of your 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 beingness, right? So we need to navigate that very differently. And I've only just realized that, be honest with you, right? So we're going to be creating something that will help you just have a little dabble in what it means to be someone who doesn't drink alcohol, a little play, okay? Um, so email us at 1kdaysober at gmail.com if you want to know a little bit more about that, right? But I'll be giving you more details in the coming weeks. Secondly, we're just on the verge of um, really getting stuck into the work we do on relationships. So relationships and addiction is like, boom, it's like really close, really tight, right? It's very unusual to find somebody who is uh, addicted to alcohol. It doesn't have a, a, a bad uh, relationship with themselves or with somebody. So we're going to be helping people to learn to embody conscious conflict in their relationships. We're going to provide you with a nice container, nice, safe, trusting, connected container, nice community of people. Uh, it's free of charge. And we're going to be uh, providing you with some training for 12 days. At the heart of that 12 days will be five real core concepts, training on core concepts. We just, we just did this recently um, with a little container on how to be someone that doesn't drink alcohol with craving. We're going to do the same on uh, embodying conscious conflict. So if you find that you're constantly fighting with somebody or yourself um, and it's leading to you to drink or to um, just behave like, in ways you don't want to behave, then reach out to us at 1kdaysober at gmail.com and we'll get you into that group. All right? Okay. Now, without further ado, I'm going to talk to you about our guest a little bit, Diana Nicole Baxter. Our beliefs drive our actions, thoughts, and words. However, once we go through trauma, these actions, thoughts, and words can become radically different and even hurtful to others. Are we brave enough to face the dark and uncomfortable sides of our humanity? Do we have the guts to even have conversations about them? In this episode, 
Diana Nicole Baxter joins us to talk about being ruthlessly honest. She stresses the importance of facing difficult conversations to understand ourselves on a deeper level. It's only with awareness that we can start the process of forgiveness and healing, and we need to find balance and harmony, not only in ourselves, but also with society, the bigger picture. Diana Nicole Baxter is a certified transformational life coach, Kundalini yoga instructor, and an Emmy award-winning storyteller, actress, writer, director, right? Diana has been a student of mastering spiritual laws and a leader in transformation for over a decade. She is a ruthless storyteller with a compassionate heart, and she addresses trauma as an opportunity for transformation through all of these mediums. This is what Diana said in a little quote we got off her. I help overachieving women of color shed sexual shame and trauma so that they can embody their divine sensual power and unleash their authentic voice. My clients embrace their power and live a life of purpose without self-sabotaging habits and crippling self-doubt. Ultimately, they come back home to themselves so they can live an abundant life of pleasure, ease, and joy. When one truly claims their power in a radical acceptance of themselves, providence aligns. I love that, Diana. Here are three reasons why you should listen to this episode. Learn why people shy away from difficult conversations and how we can be ruthlessly honest. Discover how to expand your awareness and use the power of your voice and understand why harmony is essential for us as individuals and a collective whole. So without further ado, I'll shut the hell up and leave you in the capable hands of a very powerful and sensual and incredibly beautiful and intelligent and outstanding, powerful woman, Diana Nicole Baxter. Over to you. Diana, I am in Tahunga in Los Angeles. What? All this time I thought you were like somewhere else on another continent and you're here in LA. Where are you? you? I'm in LA. I'm in Mid-City. You're in Mid-City? I don't even know where that is. Where's Mid-City? You know where Miracle Mile is or Hancock Park is? No. I'm right, right off of like, uh, in, like off of Wilshire. I'm trying to think of the closest cross streets. Wilshire in between Highland and Rimpau. Do you know where that is? I am what you would call a uh, COVID LA child. So. Oh, wow. So, so you have before. I'm not... Not really. I mean, before COVID, like, you know, I got to be honest, I was being a bit of a baby, so I wouldn't drive anywhere or anything. I was foreboding joy. I wasn't giving myself the vulnerability of just diving out there. I was very reliant on my wife. And then now with COVID, yeah, we don't, we don't generally go many places. So I haven't been out exploring, but I would like to, um, yeah, like to get in touch when things calm down a little bit. What's that trophy behind you? That big gold one? That big gold one, that's an Emmy Award. That's an Emmy Award? Hey, hey, that feels heavy. It is heavy. It's my my weight. <laughs> wow. What did you get the Emmy for? Yeah. Uh, I got this Emmy for a, a series that I co-created and starred in and co-wrote um, called Cytocracy 88. We did not know about branding. Nobody remembers the name. <laughs> um, and it was a choose-your-own-adventure um, interactive web series. And this was right in the beginning of like, this was 2006, 2007. So Mm -hmm. this is before the word web series was even invented at the time. Um, Eisner had left Disney and he went to create his own digital studio, Vugaroo. So people were really playing with storytelling in the digital space. I mean, this is Mm -hmm. when we watch things super small. We'd still hear the, you know, YouTube had just come out. So 
you know, we didn't do it to win anything. We were just creatives that were super bored at the time and our phones weren't ringing and we were like, let's create something together on this new platform and how can we make it interactive? Wow. Those are choose your own adventure books were the first books I read as a child. Weren't they great? They're all um, Dungeons and Dragons style books. I think it was um, Steve Ian Livingston uh, was his name, I think. And you would, um, you'd face monsters and you would roll dice to have fights and you would put the score in your book. Um, and to be honest with you, now I help people quit alcohol. Um, I've read loads of books about gamification and stuff, and I love the idea of turning the whole journey into a choose-your-own-adventure. Uh, it's a big part of our evolution phase. It's like, what better way to fill your white space with like really super charged meaning and purpose and to go on an adventure, right? I love that. Yes, yes. I think that's also, I grew up on choose-your-own-adventure books. And there's something about choice, first first and foremost, Mm. and understanding how certain choices will lead you down one path that might be a dead end or will lead you to another, right? And it was that 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 risk of going with what you really, like your first intuition of what choice you wanted to take, right? So yeah, I love that. I love that. And I love that you're going to be incorporating gamification, just period. Like, My uh, four-year-old, she has a book, uh, it's called, um, some of the, the main um, protagonist is called Danny. He's a little lad and, um, it's a choose your own adventure book for toddlers. So my, my daughter gets to choose whether he has a tantrum or whether he does some breath work and see how it works out. Um, and it's, it's really interesting to see a toddler know what the right choice is or not, but still play around with it to see what actually happens. Right. So that, that allows me then as a parent to, to not, talk in uh, the context of right or wrong, but to talk in the context of choices. Did we yeah. make a good choice there or did we make a bad choice then? What do you think? How do you think about the choice you made? You know, which when you get into our work, wow, I wish someone had done that when we were kids. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I know. Breath work or a tantrum. I just love this. I love this. And and how old is she? Did you say five? Uh, she's four. Four. Wow. Mm. Ugh, like what a gift to be a parent and in this particular time on the planet and these goals that are coming through and what the knowledge and the space that they're given to really kind of explore who they truly are in comparison, at least, you know, my generation was not about that, right? My gen- I, I like the way you said my generation is not, but you were like testing my age then, weren't you? No, I was testing myself if my ego was going to allow myself to say my age or not. That's what I was <laughs> Well, I am closer to 50 than I am to 40 um, just recently. So, Well, congratulations. I'm closer to 40 than 50, but we're still in the fours. There we go. Boom, boom, boom. So you talked, you talked, I was reading on your website, um, ruthless storytelling. You want to punch people in the guts and rip their hearts out. I was like, what's that about? Tell me, what is it? What is ruthless storytelling? Ruthless storytelling. Ruthless storytelling for me is basically leaving nothing unsaid, right? I'm going to take it back to a film that uh, Birth of a Nation, not the original Birth of a Nation that was shown in the White House and with the KKK chasing someone in blackface, right? First movie shown in the White House. Anyways, that's a whole nother conversation. This was a, um, a movie that came out a few years ago and 
in it, it was telling the story of Joe Turner, who basically was a slave who rebelled, right? And there was this whole massacre that happened. And in the massacre in the movie, they didn't show like them killing babies. I was like, they should have shown literally like that they was they were not leaving any of the f- former generations, right, of slave owners to come along, even babies, as horrific as that is. I don't believe in like sugarcoating our humanity because all of us have those, <laughs> all of us have the potential to be a serial killer. I believe that, right? All of us have the potential to be um, horrifically violent. All of us have the potential to be um radiant, loving beings as well. I think that's who we are naturally. But when, especially when we're talking about history, this omission of violence is a disservice. So when I talk, so I always talk about show them killing babies, right? I know that sounds horrible, but I mean it. And a lot of my personal filmmaking has really been a gift because it's been a way for me to process my own not even process because I believe the processing of my own trauma prior to, and then I get to really share my story, which I think is a way of liberation. Right. And a lot of both, both of the films that I've made have dealt with a lot of my own personal family secrets, family trauma, things that a lot of fear came up around, around even expressing these things because, Oh, I need to protect my mother or I need to protect this person in the family. And, you know, we don't air our family laundry on the streets, but I think it's so important for us to really tell our stories. And even in me telling my story, that's not going to be the perception of how my mother saw it. Right. Mm. But that's what I mean. No holds barred, ruthless storyteller with a compassionate heart. So I'm not making content or these films or, or anything that I make um, independently. I'm not making it for shock value but I'm not afraid to go to the depths of the shadows of the human uh, experience. And I think that's very important. It's really interesting that you say that uh, me and Liza have been watching a fantastic series called warrior on HBO max. Mm-hmm. And it was a scene uh, last night in the show that we was watching that we were like, after ending, we were like, oh, wow, that was like so tense. And it was a scene where two, um, bad guys will say broke into the home of uh, a good guy and his wife having dinner with his kids and they were trying to kill the kids Mm. and one of the kids got a gun and everybody's fighting trying to protect the kids and he's got this gun and the tension is the gun in the kid's hand because that is not allowed in storytelling you can't kill a kid in storytelling you can't have kids killing people in storytelling they shouldn't be kids when there's all this kind of blood and gore going on so that created tension and i and i imagine what you're talking about is you know for me anyway personal challenge and growth comes when i'm touching the edges and i'm pushing the envelope and i feel that tension and that that allows well you can either contract or you can you can either contract or expand Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I like to make people uncomfortable Mm. in that way through storytelling. I think it's important. I think, I think, um, and like I said, not for shock value, not that I wanted to literally see babies being murdered. I'm not saying that. I think especially in the Western world, there is this obsession with violence and especially violence with women, right? Every single cop TV show, you're seeing murdered women's bodies. And like, that's not what I'm talking about. 
I'm talking about really being ruthlessly honest about the human experience and to push that edge where it's not black and white anymore. Right. So for instance, like the, the, the one, my first film that I did was called Cowboys Girl. And it was uh, a slice of life about my relationship with the man who I was told was my father for 31 years. After 31, I found out that that was a lie. I got a DNA test. He's not my father. I don't know who my father is. Anyways, within that, it was really important for me to show him as a whole man, show him as the talented, funny, yet broken, abusive man he is, because he has a whole history of trauma, which has informed his way of being in the world, especially when it looks like when trauma is not healed, right? So it was really important in the casting of this man that a man that could, that automatically had a presence on screen, uh, like a brutality, but had the depths of vulnerability so that the the audience would understand that this is, this is not about villain and hero. This is about whole people, unresolved trauma. And what does that look like on screen? You know? So I don't even know why I got off on that tangent, but yeah, I think it's, it's important to really look at all of these sides of ourselves. And for me, what's coming up for me is a couple of things coming up for me, uh, which I think could be learning points for people is, um, it's just two things. Like one is processing. So, you know, you're showing something that I've never really given too much thought about, which is using the art and vehicle of, of movie and screen to process um, your own trauma uh, in order for you to process it, but also for people to, to learn from it. So I think that's like really important. The other thing that's coming up for me is um, it's like, when you speak the truth, it allows, it opens a window for other people to go there as well. So an example, uh, Liza and I, the other night, we watched, we watched a super uncomfortable movie. I can't remember what it was called. I never even asked her what it was called, actually, uh, about date rape, about alcohol and women getting blackout drunk and then men having sex with women who were drunk and preying on them and then laughing at them and all that kind of stuff, right? And then the whole very complicated, convoluted debate around is alcohol responsible for this? Are the men responsible for this? Are the women responsible for this, right? You could just watch that and then just go and do the dishes or go do the ironing and then uh, go kiss, give a kiss and a cuddle and then go to bed. We watched it and I said, that was one of the most uncomfortable movies that I've ever watched because when I was young, I remember being that type of guy and the look on like Liza's face that holy shit, like I'm married to somebody like capable of that. And then the conversation around the incident and incidents. So she could see me as a human being and not some kind of monster prey, you know, like preys on women and to like, but it was a so complicated conversation. And there was a there was a moment in there where my my subconscious went to, holy shit, like she she could really leave me now because I've just told her this story. And then it quickly went off. And I see that she was just holding me in compassion and space and allowing me to talk about something that the world doesn't want me to talk about. Because if it does, I have to villainize myself. Right. Well, first and foremost, thank you for um, your ruthless honesty. <laughs> and, um, but this is what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. I, I was the girl that was blackout drunk from my unresolved trauma. 
I would have to, I would get blackout drunk and there's been plenty of date rapes. There's been plenty of times where I would wake up and not even know where I was. Right. And that was a way of me disassociating with the body from prior sexual abuse. I didn't know that at the time though. Mm. Right. And it's funny because I did a play at the beginning of last year around this time. And it was called never not once. And it was about a, a lesbian couple. And I was playing um, the, the wife basically of this other woman. And she had a daughter who came home from college and wanted to know who her biological father was. Her mother said it was a hookup in college. She doesn't even know who the guy is. Long story short, the, the girl, the daughter, finds the father. The father says, oh, it's not me. He shows up later, and it all comes out. The reason why she didn't tell her daughter the truth is because it was a night of alcohol in college, and she was raped. Hmm. And in his mind, when she confronts him in this play, not the daughter, but the mother, and says, do you not remember? Like, he was like, what are you talking about? We were both drinking. Like he really did not. And she's like, well, why are you a drunk now? It's because you know, you know what you did. You, you know, there was this whole, it was not black. It's not black and white. It's no. not. And, and we are products of the programming of our culture, right? When it comes to what it is to be a man, what it is to be a woman. And I just remember the discussions after that play, people would stay and there'd be these long discussions like most theater going, going audiences. Most of the audience was older and white. And there was a lot of older white men that were honest and they were like that I've done that. That's not rape. Right. Mm-hmm. Like in there at that time period, as far as in the, in, in the consciousness of uh, the collective consciousness, that wasn't considered rape because there was also a, and even in women's minds, like I would, I didn't consider that rape. What was happening to me? It was my fault. I got drunk, right? Something was wrong with me. I got drunk or I flirted with them and that's my fault or whatever. Either way, we are products in a large way of collective consciousness. And in the past, it's almost always been that women's bodies are in service to men and even women have bought into that. So I think it's super important. And it's going to be triggering and it's going to be uncomfortable for us to have these conversations so that we can come to a more expanded awareness, right, of not just the predator and the victim, but where where the identities even come from of what it is to be in, in your own power over your body and over your choices, and yeah. it's, it's, it's not an easy conversation, but I really applaud you for, for owning that. I think if more men did, there would be a healing in the, in, the, in the male collective as well, because I don't think it's talked about, right? To me, it's uh, like, I think the word collective consciousness is like really important. It's not one that's been in my vocabulary, certainly not in the, in the, in the conscious thought. I mean, the way, the way I look at it and the way I talk about it is, you know, from the age of 14 when I lost my virginity to, pff, holy shit, till I stopped drinking when I was 35, mm. I would say the vast, I would say 99% of sexual activity outside of wedlock was drunk. And I would say the vast amount of sexual activity within my first marriage was when we were drunk. Obviously, you would have sex when you wasn't, but most of the time, sex happened when you were drunk, when you were drinking, right? And I know for a fact that the, the vast amount of time when I was having sex, I was in and out of states of blackout as a, as a man. So 
From, and I also know that there was this in existence then. So we're talking, I would say, between the ages of 16, maybe 21, when I met my wife, where there was this, there was this story. And I don't know where it came from. I don't know how it ended up in my head. I don't know if it was following the guys who were older than me that I was hanging around in. I don't know whether I picked it up off TV. I don't know if it was in my DNA. But there was this thing about you go out on a Saturday night with your mates, you get smashed. And the one that doesn't find a woman and take her home and have sex is a prick. He is the guy that nobody wants to be. So you would, you would, that was the whole goal of the night was to meet somebody and take them home. And at the time I lived with my mom, like to sneak them up the stairs, <laughs> do your thing. And then just fucking sneak them out again before your mom and dad woke up in the morning. That was the way I grew up. That was my provincialism, small mom mentality. So if I'm in and out of consciousness, because I'm suffering from, I've always suffered from blackouts all my life. I'm pretty confident that a lot of the women are probably like that as well. So as I've said before on this podcast, where the hell is the conversation around um, permission? And, um, you know, and there, and there is no respect. Let's just take that way out of it. Like, and the reason that we had to have this conversation is I have a 20-year-old son. Mm. So, so for something that just felt natural to me, I'm like, does this feel natural to him? Mm. I, so my conversations with Jude as we were growing up was, um, very different than my parents. You've got to respect women. You, if you're going to watch porn, that is not real life. You do not treat women like that. That is not sex. That is not respect. And these are the conversations I had to have, but to have them, you have to talk about what well, I did anyway, what it was like for me growing up, you know? And that's why I talk about these things on a podcast. Cause there are, there are parents of children who are not having these conversations. Mm. And I got a daughter now. I've got to figure that one out as well. She's four, but I got to figure that one out as well as we go along, you know, and that came up the other night after watching that thing. Like, how would I feel if something like that happened to my daughter? Would I blame the guy? Would I blame the alcohol? You know, and I, I like to think that I'm, it would be really, really difficult, but I'm, I'm, I'm beyond blame and more of right understanding the situation. Mm. Like I understand how that can happen. So that helps me and removes the need for forgiveness because I can understand how it happens. So that makes sense. It's like it does. It does make sense. And you know, it's interesting because I, I'm still working on, with myself with a lot of sacred rage. I had some, a man at the end of last year who was like, "I don't know if you know this, but you don't trust men." I was like, "Well, you don't know me that well, and you're damn right, right?" I'm still working on that. I have a lot of things that have happened to me and, and for me, I will say, um, and have witnessed a lot of violence, right. F from men, um, growing up as a little girl and throughout living in a culture that really does not respect women and sees women's bodies as bodies. Like even now the, the, well, at least a few years ago, I don't keep up on too much of the lingo these days, but now they're like, Oh yeah, I bodied that. Like, that's how they literally talk about having sex with women. Like, how many bodies you got? Right. Like, how many bodies do you got? Like, this is, it's just this, it's so deeply rooted in what I believe is the fear of the feminine. And we all have masculine and feminine, both men and women, right? But it's the fear of the unknown, the fear of the feminine, the fear of that, of the darkness, right? Of the expansiveness, the fear of 
create sensual creativity, the fear of sensual power, right? It's no different than women here in Hollywood who are going getting their pussies cut up to look like porn stars, which basically look like little girls. Hmm. Than it is from women in Egypt. When I lived there in 97, 97% of the women there were, they call it circumcised. I call it genitally mutilated. The doctors could do this, right? Mm -hmm. There's no difference. It's still rooted in this fear of the power of the woman. And I think that shows up in men as the repression of their own feminine energy, their receptivity, their ability and, and to allow themselves to be vulnerable, to be seen. Like there's so much, I mean, I can't even imagine what it is to, to be a man, right? I have a view on that that just popped into my head. Yeah. A work, a work in view. Yeah. <laughs> I was just talking about it on our group call, actually. Okay, bear with me and see if this makes sense. So when we start out in a relationship with another human being, there's the spark, there's the passion, there's a mystery. We don't kind of like, we we, we don't really know what to expect. And then at some point, particularly the man, he trades that passion for security. And um, like, like I'm in a relationship with you, Diana, like I want to marry you as quickly as I can, because if I'm not with a woman and don't have a woman in my home, then I'm, I'm not a man. Right. Mm. So, so we swap passion and mystery and risk and uh, unpredictability for sameness, security, stale vanilla, right? Mm -hmm. And then what happens is we become afraid of the woman in the relationship blossoming, booming, growing, evolving, having power because that weakens you as a man because you think that they're going to leave and they'll take away your security. And if they take away your security, then you ain't no man because you can't keep a woman in your home. And the job of a man is to marry a woman and to have a home and a kid and a wife, right? Mm. I'm picking this up from reading, reading a little bit about Esther Perel around sex mm. and, how, and how eroticism fades and a little bit around... Patricia Love and Steve Stosny's work on men, well, conflict between men and women being rooted in a man's shame and a woman's fear, you know? Mm, so like, yeah. So I don't know. That's going through my mind at the, at the moment. I mean, I, you're, I think you're talking a layer beneath that in terms of like the fucking DNA of a man. And I'm probably. Yeah, but I don't even think it's necessarily the DNA of a man. I think it's the programming of what we, that both women and men have been taught what manhood is. I think right. it's programming of what through, that collect, through that collective consciousness. Yes. And through, if we look at history, when, if we look at goddess culture, right, which was very different and I don't remember the exact date, but basically if we think of Egypt, when we, they started worshiping one monolithic God, so Ra, the sun God, right? Around these times was the beginning of the um, death of the goddess culture. So uh, no more many deities, no more like nature representing the different multifaceted energies of spirit. It was like, nope, one God, right? The man is the head now. It was this, it, it just was, a, it's the beginning of patriarchy, basically. And I think that word is so over, it kind of gets on my nerves, honestly, but it was the beginning of patriarchy. So it's interesting that what you just said about a man, like wanting a woman in the, like the security of that, because, and I'm not sure obviously you're a man saying this, but 
the men that I have met it and know and have talked to about things like this, they often say for them, it's about until a certain point, as many women as they can get. Right. It's not even about having, it's, it's always just about having a woman and that woman might not necessarily be a wife. She might be a fuck buddy. She might be, there might be multiple women, but that being able to have ownership over a woman's body, even if that's not what they're thinking, that's what that is. Right. I have the right to this body defines their manhood, which energetically, I believe that the, the masculine divine masculine energy is in service to the divine feminine, right? And not in service to when we think of a patriarchal uh, uh, hierarchy, like the divine feminine is above the divine masculine. I'm not saying that. I'm saying the, the harmonious dance between the two. The structure of the masculine is in service to the flow of the feminine. It has the container, right? It's the energy, just like we talk about any action we take, right? It's not the action. It's the energetics behind it. The feminine is the energetics. The action is the masculine. You can do the action all you want. If the energetics aren't in alignment, the actions are destructive, usually, mm. right? So I don't even know where I'm going with this, but yeah, I, <laughs> I, think that, I think that we are in a time right now, right? Um, you know, everybody's talking about divine feminine rising, all of this, all of that. And I think it's, we have to be careful with the, not careful with the way we talk about it, but be more holistic in the way we talk about that. This is not the same flip side of, you know, back in the day when it's not the flip side of patriarchy, right? The divine feminine rising is the divine feminine within all of us rising in order to come back into harmony. So that me, even you, absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. I know for me as a woman for years, I definitely survived out of my masculine energy, right? I was a doer. I viewed life as, oh, I'm a poor black girl from a single parent mom. I got to struggle. I got to be 10 times as good in this white society, blah, all of these identity things, right? And it took a long time until that, that served me up to a certain point, And then it didn't anymore. And I, I was like, oh, and so much of my worth was attached to my achievements and look at what I've done and this and this and this. It wasn't until I started to soften and start to listen to my true desires, not what I thought I should accomplish in order to be worthy. All of these things that I consider the feminine that I've been able, and, and I'm still a work in progress, yeah, <laughs> working on what that, what that feels like to be in harmony, not necessarily balance, but harmony with that. And I do think this planet right now is going through a rebirth and the divine feminine is rising and we're coming back into harmony. And we see it. We see it in politics right now, all over the world, not just the U.S. Mm. We see this like old paradigm hanging on super, super tight, right? In Poland right now, you have women on the streets um, marching because they've banned abortion in Poland, right? There's the rapes happening in India. There's the human trafficking of little girls happening all over the world right now in LA, right? There's, there's all of this still like last bit of hanging on to destroy the feminine, right? And in the, in the embodiment of woman, but it's the end of it. And I, I really, and my prayer is that the women, especially women in the spiritual industry, because it's become an industry, which is dangerous in itself, but women in the spiritual industry don't confuse that leading this divine feminine rising is not a reaction to an old way. 
It's an embodiment of what is possible in a new way. That's why you said it's not a flip. It's not flipping a coin. It's not flipping a coin. Exactly. Yeah. There's a phenom- phenomenon that we use in our work at 1000 Days Sober we call the death effect, where I can talk to you about, um, you know, our thoughts and uh, viewpoint and philosophy around alcohol and how we drink because of the collective consciousness and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you could be nodding and be going, yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. I get it. And we could be in a bar and you're like, wow, yeah, Lee, I really understand it. And then you can order yourself a glass of wine, right? We call that the death effect, right? Um, And usually it's um, it's linked to this deep-seated subconscious unwillingness to introduce cognitive dissonance in our mind over a particular sub- subject. And whenever I hear somebody talk about divine, you know, like the, the female and masculine energies without gender lines, I very definitely feel, because I'm aware of the concept, I feel the death effect. I start telling myself, this is too complicated. I don't understand it. So... What happens when I find it too complicated? I don't understand it. I don't bother with it. I go right. somewhere else. Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so yeah, I guess I'm using that as a, as a, as yeah, I think as a man. Yeah. There's something that you're saying there is speaking truth because my, my soul doesn't want to go there. Something about me doesn't want to go there and listen to it. Yeah. I, that's interesting that you say that. And, and it's also interesting that you say that because even with, with my coaching clients, you know, women aren't coming to me thinking that they're not in touch with their divine feminine, right? That's not the language people talk. Yeah, in. Yeah, All yeah. they know is that like they, they might have fibroids, right? They, they have womb dis-ease or they keep attracting unavailable men or their uh, self-sabotaging habits are getting louder and louder and louder, or it might be showing up in many different ways. Their disconnect with their own innate power, right? But I can see with them what's happening, right? And then when we start to work on, one of the key things I work on with women is shedding sexual shame, right? And if we just look at statistics, one in three women have been sexually abused or assaulted, and that's one in three, right? So uh, one of the key things is looking at that and not necessarily looking at, let's go back to the trauma, let's dig it up. It's not about that. It's about there's a lot of actions that have come out of that trauma when that trauma is not resolved that you start to think something's wrong with me, I'm not worthy, I'm broken, I need to be fixed, all of these things. And so one of the first things, one of the first things I have them do is really start to connect with that space, whether they have a physical womb or not. I've had older clients that don't have a physical womb. But if we're looking at energy space, it is the second chakra. It is the place of creativity, right? You have it as well, but not alone. Uh, and to work on forgiveness, forgiving yourself first. I had to do a lot of forgiveness around my own uh, shaming of myself. A lot of forgiveness around the, the blackout drinking, right? And for me with blackouts, I've always blacked out. I drank first time when I was 12 years old, drank two 40 ounces of OE, woke up in my own piss, right? I could drink two glasses of wine one night and blackout. Like I didn't have any control over how those blackouts would show up. But I had, to, I had to really work on forgiveness for myself first and for that younger woman at the time 
who is acting out of want, you know, we're all just, no matter what the action is, we're just wanting more love. We're thinking that we can find it outside of ourselves or in that drink or in that man or in that bed or whatever it is. So forgiveness to me is everything to really start to work with that. And then I, then I start to work with just coming back to the body. The body holds so much wisdom. We can talk therapy all we want, but if you're not releasing things from your cellular being, and I do that with breath work, Kundalini yoga, sound healing with the gong, which is specifically for women in the second chakra, we don't have to go and rehearse the old trauma, right? Sometimes that's necessary. We don't have to go and rehearse the whole trauma, but we do have to start to release not only from our minds, as far as how we think of ourselves, how we talk to ourselves, from our hearts, forgiving ourselves, and then coming into that womb space and start to reconnect with that space, not as an enemy, right? Because by the time it's shown up as dis-ease in the body, whether it's painful periods, endometriosis, fibroids, bacterial vaginosis, like whatever it is, we start to even make our womb the enemy. Like something's wrong with me. This sucks. Oh, it's fucking period time again. Like we become so disconnected from what I consider the highest technology in the world, the womb, right? So why am I saying all this? There's something you brought up. Like I said, honey, I can run on. <laughs> bring it all back. <laughs> I, to bring it all back, I think that this divine feminine rising is also just a coming home to that place in ourselves, deep forgiveness, coming back home to the wisdom of the body, coming back home to the compassion itself so that you can see others through the eyes of compassion and understand that most people are reacting from some kind of trauma they've experienced as well. Mm. And when we get into the conversation of justice, I believe love is justice. This is where it gets blurry. Just how we started off this conversation, right? When it comes to that film you watched and okay, fine. This person has been conditioned because of this or because growing up with locker room talk, whatever it is, does that excuse him from not being aware and taking advantage of this woman and vice versa? If this woman's come has, uh, uh, I'll use myself an example in my twenties, I was very promiscuous. Right. And I had a lot of shame around that, which, but that promiscuity for me personally was not coming from personal choice. It was coming out of a reaction from trauma from sexual abuse. So if you're looking at me and it's like, well, I can have compassion for her, but she still is making the choices to have blackout sex, unprotected, whatever. Right. It's that's where the justice part gets a little blurry, Mm. but I do feel right now what's happening with men losing their jobs, old shit coming out. If we're looking at fucking predators like Harvey Weinstein, um, Bill Cosby, R. Kelly, um, um, my own uncle, right? If we're, if we're looking at that, there has to be some kind of accountability. There has to be. Because once again, the little girls that are getting trafficked, the women that are getting raped on a daily basis, this is all still a part of a deeper rooted fear of feminine power. And until we can start embracing that within ourselves, like and it's happening now. It'll continue. Yeah, and yeah, you need you need the voices. You need the voice of the man in there, which goes back to what we're talking about. Because you know, you said one in three women have been sexually abused or raped. If I just look at my own inner circle of, and we all know our inner circle is just our family and those really closest to us. 
four, I can think of four people who've either been raped or sexually abused, right? Now, and I, and I consider that I have like a normal family. We grew up in a normal area, et cetera, et cetera. So there has to be an admission. I, I'm skating on thin ice here. So, um, we're skating on thin ice. I'm going to put conversation. We're skating together. I'm just skating on thin ice. So I'm just going to say what's on my mind. There has to be an admission here that there's something evolutionary and anthropologically and psychologically wrong with men, or let's say a large percentage of men to make it more, more particular. Let me give an example. Okay. Why would I be interested in bondage? So it's a, it's a particular type of sex practice safely. It is just, it's just, you know, pushing your edges, pushing your boundaries, finding your passion, doing things you like, right? But let's look at what it is, right? You're, 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 you're tying people up or being tied up. There's a dom submission kind of element to it, you know, that with uh, who has not been in bed with someone who says, choke me a little bit, right? Or, or hold me down or whatever, right? And then you're getting turned on by that. And then it's kind of like, what's this about? Why? Why, why isn't vanilla missionary sex enough. Now, I'm not saying that everybody is like me thinking, oh, yeah, I like the idea of tying a woman up. or I like the idea of being tied up. By the way, I don't like the idea of being tied up, which might be interesting in itself. Um, mm. But the porn industry, folk, is fucking massive. I know. It's, so this is, this is not just the workings of Lee Davies' mind, right? Like, No, so- it's not. It's about power, though. That whole thing is about power. I mean, rape is about power, right? It's about power. I've been a woman who's been tied up and I've tied a man up, right? It's about power. But once again, I don't think it's something that's inherently biologically, whatever else you said about men. I think that it is, I don't even remember how many years, it's been thousands of years of the fear of the feminine energy. So yes, it's intergenerational. This has been carried on. And I really do think this is breaking out. Now, what does that mean? That also means that you know, because everybody talks about toxic masculinity. Okay, great. But we just started labeling it toxic masculinity. Beforehand, it was just manhood. It, it was promoted as being just a, well. You're making a man. Yeah. I think so, though. But, but right? there, would be, there would be a big missing element of it, though, I think. So there would be there would be this archetype and stereotype about a man being a man, being a boss, all that kind of stuff. But it, what wasn't being spoke about was how the man would be sexually. Like, because of the stigma of sexuality, you know, like I, when I grew up, like you, you just don't talk about that shit. Yeah. You know, so it's a big hidden part of it. I think this, like, nobody wants to go there. Yeah. Well, and that's the problem. It's going there and that's why you're seeing like the repercussions of it, but we need to go deeper to understand even women of where that, like, if I look at my past relationships, long-term relationships, I emasculated those men, right. totally emasculated them. I didn't realize that I was doing, there was some part of me that was getting off on it. Let's not even lie. Right. Cause it was still some of my sacred rage, but I was operating from a place of toxic masculinity that in me and power and power over. Hmm. Right. And choosing men that I truly didn't believe were, were my equals, 
because I had my own abandonment issues. I knew I could leave them and I'd be okay. And they'd never leave me. Right. It was all about power. All of this is really about power at the end of the day. And I think it's so, that's why it's so important to own your own shit and look within and do the work Mm. because what's happening now is people aren't talking about the dark feminine, right? Which is really the repressed divine feminine energy, which shows up as manipulation, emasculating. I, I feel that I have power over you. So I'm going to, it's, it's the same reasons why men will say it's the same whole Adam and fucking Eve, stupid ass argument, right? Eve's the temptress, da, 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 all this stuff. It's still the root of the fear of the feminine, but it's been mislabeled. So when women are repressing their natural feminine energy, their divine feminine, it comes out as the dark feminine, right? Which is, can be very destructive. Usually it's always destructive to yourself more than others. Manipulative, um, in service to bodies, only in service to men to get something in return, right? Like it's this, but that is the energy that manhood up until now, which we're now labeling toxic masculinity, how manhood and has always been defined towards women. Does that make sense? Yeah. The, the, the movie that we watched, um, basically the, the girl who blacked out and was raped at like one of these uh, American kind of frat parties or whatever. We don't have them in the UK. We have similar things, but she, she got raped and she dropped out of med school and she killed herself. Mm. And then her best friend couldn't get over it. So when she got older, she would pretend that she was drunk, lure men back to her home. And then while they were trying to get it on, she would wake up and she'd be like, hey. And they would realize that she wasn't drunk. And then she would shame them and be like, do you want to fuck? Do you want to fuck? And they would be like, get the fuck, you know, because they realize now they've been duped. So I guess that's the toxic. All right. It's linked to tremendous trauma but that's like uh am i on the right lines that's like kind of like kind of not really and i say this because and whatever this might be my own shit like i said i'm still <laughs> healing my sacred rage right i'm learning i'm learning yeah, I'm like, i love her i'm like fuck yeah like she's teaching them lessons motherfucker you thought you're gonna get up in here and take advantage of me while i'm drunk well guess what i'm not you still want to fuck me are you gonna ask Are you just going to shove your dick inside of my dry pussy that you haven't even taken the time to fucking please yet? You know, like I even people, even women's knowledge of their own bodies is so limited. I, my clients, I, you know, I have them look at themselves. There's women that have never even looked at themselves. And this, and now I'm going to go off on a tangent a little bit. There's, there's this, and I just found this out. Many women already know this. I didn't know it when, 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 Women are fetuses in the womb. Some of the first cells that start being made, the first cell that splits is that that develops the womb and that that develops the throat. It's made of the same tissue. So our ability to speak our authentic truth and speak up and all of this is directly connected to our relationship with our creativity, with our sensuality, with our feelings of safety, security, and, and our desires and our passion, right? So... I don't think that woman's a form of toxic mass, to, uh, uh, toxic masculinity coming out at, from a feminine, from a woman. Yeah. I think that's a form of sacred rage and I love what she's doing. And I hope, I hope it woke some of those guys up like, Oh, this isn't cool. Right. Or, Oh, maybe I am taking advantage of the situation. But once again, until we stop thinking of women's bodies as only to be in service to men, hmm. 
that's not going to change because there is a entitlement that even in people's religious texts, you know, it's like, oh, it's not rape if it's your husband. That's in the Bible. That's in the Quran. That's, you know, in many different religious texts that are rooted in patriarchy as well. Right. There's the mysticism of those religions do not say, do not preach the same things. But until we stop thinking of women as product and instill women, until women stop thinking of themselves as product, it's not going to change. But I think it's shifting. Is there a thin ice again? I can feel it. <laughs> okay. Is there an element here, not condoning anything, of what we're talking about? And I'm just thinking about myself here. This is me, folks, by the way I work. It says, as I grew up, I have no fucking idea of anything you're talking about because nobody's telling me, nobody's having a conversation with me, nobody's telling me that what I'm doing is wrong, the way I'm behaving is wrong. It just seems right. There's nothing educated in school. You don't see it on TV or nothing. Like, is there an element of this that, you can just be so fucking ignorant to it because nobody's talking about it. And now it's really good that we are talking about it. And then when it happens that the man just becomes so defensive that he refuses to acknowledge or take any responsibility for anything. He just wants to be right. He doesn't want to morally compromise himself. And he's just like, no, I'm just going to blame the woman all fucking day long. I am not that guy. Yeah. Like the amount of times I've said to Liza, my wife, not around sex, but around really difficult conversations, the way I behave and gaslighting and stuff. The amount of times I've said, I'm not that guy. And mm. then afterwards, I have to apologize and go, fuck, I am that guy. Right. But I was in the moment, Dan, and I'm just so convinced that she's wrong and I'm right, that I would never cross that boundary, you know? And it's, it's only until I surround myself with people like you who are, you know, um, ruthless enough to punch me in the gut, rip my fucking heart out from a place of loving kindness. I can, I can go, shit, what the fuck's happened to me? Yeah. I think, I think, I think anybody with privilege that usually is the first response, right? We're seeing that not just in men, we're seeing that in class differences. We're seeing that with race constructs, especially right now in this country. It's like, no, I'm not this. I'm not that right. Like if they don't have, and some of it is pure ignorance, and some of it is the will for ign the willful ignorance that I don't have to even look at that because I don't need to consider what you've experienced because my people, my life, my sex, my gender, whatever is, of course, more entitled to what I want, period. So there's a level of entitlement there that I think people have a lot of resistance at looking at, entitlement and privilege that people have a lot of resistance at looking at, right? That's why it's so important to really take a hard look in the mirror. We have to own these parts of ourselves. Like we, we all have the potentiality of all of this in us at the end of the day. And I had some, the same person who was like, you know, um, you, you don't trust men. My initial meeting him, there was a, there was something in me that wanted to conquer him. There was that dark feminine. There was, and it, that's what was op really operating in me when, in my younger twenties, even though and I thought I can fuck whoever I want. I can do da, 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 fuck man. I don't need a man. Da, 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 all this stuff, which was just really me protecting myself. But in actuality, I was just disempowering myself. Right. And 
I felt that come and I was like, oh, I thought I did a lot of healing around this. What is this? Right? What is this part of me that's like being like, and and it was, and it wasn't when I was doing it, like, you know, really flirting, what have you, not that flirting's bad, but I'm just talking about my process with this. It wasn't until afterwards that I was like, oh, this wasn't that I even was attracted to this man or really wanted to, you know, date him. There was something in him. There was an authority in him. There was a power in him. And this in the past had been a pattern with me. Powerful men, I want to fucking make you feel like shit. I want to conquer you, right? Mm-hmm. Power, power dynamics. And then I have to look deeper and say, what part, I call her Sabina. Like I, she literally has a name, right? And I'm like, okay, Sabina, what, what am I not giving you that you need? And literally she's like, I need to have more fun. I need to be more of my sensual self. Like you're, you're shoving my power down and it's going to come out in a fucked up way unless you start honoring it. So, you know, now I bought a pole in my bedroom. I'm practicing pole dance. Yes. You know, I'm like, okay, let's, let's find ways to have fun, be sensual and get a workout out of it. Cause I hate working out, but you know, it's like, talk to those parts of yourselves. Usually it's your inner child and repressed energy that, really needs to be nurtured, but it can't come from outside of you. And even if I were to destroy that man, my ego would feel great for a moment. Right. But then I'd feel like shit because once again, like what you do to others, you're really doing to yourself. This is really funny. Cause as I'm talking to you, I'm, I'm, what's the right word I'm looking for? Cause um, I'm really curious now about this whole kind of like male, female thing. So like, I'm, uh, you're creating a real visceral, like there's something going on inside of me, in my gut, in my chest, you know, like I'm, I'm sensing your power mm. and I don't like it. Right. Like I don't like it. I'm, I'm, I'm saying to myself, fuck, I wouldn't want to be in a bedroom with this person. Right. Like <laughs> she fucking scared the shit out of me. Mm. I don't know why my, my brain just goes straight to sex type of thing, mm. but there's this thing that's like, she's really powerful. And I don't like it. And it's a different feeling than if you was a man. Like there'd be something about me which would be like, like you said, like I would, I would see another man and I would want to conquer that man. But as I'm talking to you, I see a powerful woman. I don't want to conquer you. I'm afraid of you. Not afraid. Mm. Afraid's the wrong word. I don't even know what word I'm looking for. It's making me uneasy. Mm. What's going I, on there? It's exactly what I'm talking about is, is in, in generations <laughs> and generations of the fear of the divine feminine, the power. And because we're, not, we're not used to it because women are programmed by the collective consciousness to fucking go hide. Like not to express yes. in that way. Well, yes and no, because as a black woman, like, you know, I hear, I hear a lot of like other women leaders talk about, you know, I didn't feel like I could speak up as a little girl or, I had to be the good girl. And and yes, I have some of that programming, but I didn't have the luxury of that programming. Right. It was like, no, speak your mind because if you don't, you're not going to get into the room of privilege. Right. It was like the room where it happens, the room where it happens. But once again, that's still coming from this place. Like it, it can turn into the, the toxic masculine energy. Mm. Right. Where it's like, life is hard. I got to struggle. I got to let you know who the fuck I am unless you do what I want you to do. Like, so it's not like that, that, that hiding thing 
No, that's not how, like my, my mother was a very strong, outspoken woman. Right. And she would have to come to the schools and be like, no, you put her in the advanced class. They'd be like, well, she is a Boston student. And, you know, they usually don't, in other words, she's black and she can't handle the other mom. Like if you put her in those, you know, so I had a mother who I learned from her, like, no, use your voice. You know, I learned a lot of other things from her too, that weren't, were silencing, but so, so, so yes, collective consciousness. So a woman who's speaking out and is powerful and what have you can feel threatening, but it's still, yeah, it's, I love that you brought up the visceral, the visceral, right? Because I, I say it's the fear of the divine feminine, but it, it might not even necessarily, like you said, it's for you, it's not fear, but that, what you were experiencing in your body, that is the same, that is linked literally in our DNA intergener- intergenerationally going way back to when it was like, uh-uh, no more of this goddess culture, one God, male dominated, no more mystery, no more going into the unknown, no more connecting with nature and this oneness of all elementals, no more. And you're seeing we're returning to that now. Everybody in the mama's a shaman. Everybody's exploring plant medicine. Every not everybody, but you know what I'm saying. We're, and I love this. That has to be done responsibly as well, though, because that can slip into the ego, the spiritual ego. You want to get into that? The spiritual ego, and then taking these indigenous practices, labeling them as your own medicine, and once ag- as your own medicine when it's not. So. I love that you expressed that. And that, what you expressed, is what I would get off on when I could sense the visceral, what have you. And I was sense it, sense it, but they're, they're not talking about it, right? No. And then I'm like, ooh, right? When I, when I, when I, my way of taking back my power was misplaced. It was like, I'm going to go and fuck with this guy's head or whatever it was, right? I could sense that. And it was like, ooh, I got the power here. When really, we are very powerful, right? In Kundalini Yoga, we believe that women are 16 times more powerful than men, energetically. That there's nothing beyond woman except God, right? Um, and I do believe that. But once again, I'm not speaking about this in a hierarchical way. Like, th- there is a way that if, if we really start to, start to honor each other and the pola- polarity within us, and we're not trying to make it the same, we're not trying... It's just an honoring and we start to own those parts in us that have been power hungry, that have been destructive, that have taken advantage of what have you. We start to own that rather than be like, oh, that was me back in the day. I'm not even going to speak about that. I'm not right. Got to start to own that and have these conversations. Then we can come to heal. And there was something that you brought up earlier, which I don't think is spoken about enough because I can talk about one in three women, but there is so many men out there that have been abused Mm -hmm. and I don't feel like there's very many safe spaces for them to talk about that. And I'm starting to see that shift. And I'm I'm just so grateful for leaders such as yourself. Not that your focus is that, but right. Drinking is usually a symptom of some trauma from before. And it's just so important for men to have safe spaces, especially to be seen by other men, right. Hmm. To begin that healing too. Because I think until that happens and continues to happen, we're not going to see this. We're not going to see rape decline. We're not going to, cause it's all about power mm-hmm. and the illusion that you don't have power. That's really what it is. Like we're also powerful. It's that illusion. That's why, that's why there's uh, I like this, um, this, uh, 
I mean, I don't know if it's an explosion or not. I don't know if this has been going on gradually for a long time. But in my sphere, there seems to be a lot more men's groups where they're redefining masculinity uh, or trying to redefine masculinity from a healthy space, you know. So um, I think that 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 type of stuff is good, you know. Um, These conversations are fantastic. Didn't go the way that I thought it would go. We'll have to get you on for another conversation. I, I know, gonna... I know. I mean, is it already timely? I mean, yeah. I it's just went whoosh. Oh my goodness. Oh. Yeah. I well, I'm just thank you for having me. Um, you know, we've been in containers together, but we've never really had a chance to fully connect. So this was no. just wonderful to connect. Maybe and... I just stayed away from your power. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's interesting. I'll say that, you know, you're an alpha, an alpha male, right? So you trigger that in me as well. Like you, you've definitely triggered me in our containers. <laughs> this motherfucker, you had posted something about the, the, the colors, you know, like if you're blue or red, I forget who's. Oh, color code personality type. Yeah. And I right. said it was a red. Right. And so I looked that up. Right. Cause you had posted right. like, oh, yeah, what's the fucking red? What is this about? <laughs> what was you? I think I was blue. I'll use a blue. Okay. Yeah, I think so. But anyhow, so this, I love that this is happening and I would really love to um, come back and we can have more conversation around yeah. whatever we like. But I, I thank you for your courageous vulnerability and your ruthless honesty. Yeah. I don't, I feel like I've been punched in the gut and had my heart <laughs> ripped out, but that's what Diana does. If you want to learn more about Diana Nicole Baxter's work, uh, head over to www.1000daysober.com, the podcast page. You'll find a little hole in there for Dan. It'll have all the links to all her good stuff. And work with this woman, super powerful woman. Don't be afraid of her like I am. Get in there. <laughs> Dan, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Lee. If you want to be somebody that doesn't drink alcohol or recover from any other addiction, improve your relationship with yourself and those that you love, or just want to learn to live a more conscious life, then here is what we can do to help you at 1000 Days Sober. Number one, we have a Strive subscription service, okay? So you pay a monthly fee, you come and join us, you come into our community, you get access to all our Marco Polo groups, you get access to our Kajabi group, you get access to uh, content that you will not see in the public sphere, mainly by yours truly, but by other people in my network of friends as well. What else do you get? You get access to a weekly coaching call with myself. So you can get coaching, a one-on-one coaching with me on that weekly coaching call. And you get money off various different workshops and uh, invites to lots of other free stuff. So that's our subscription service. You could do group coaching programs, okay? Right now we have two group coaching programs both called the Strive Method. The first one is addictions, okay? And they last for six months. The relationship course also lasts for six months. We've got Strive Method for addictions, Strive Method for relationships. There are workshops, okay? Or you can work with me personally one-on-one, okay? You can work with me personally one-on-one. And if you want to get involved in any of that, then just head to www.1000daysober.com and you will find everything that's going on there, okay? We have pages there on the website which will direct you in the right place and how to get older me, including a workshop space there as well. We're always running workshops, so you can sign up for those as well. Last but not least, if you do love this show and it has changed your life and you want to change the lives of somebody else, tell somebody about it and rate and review it in your podcast provider. I would really appreciate that. 
If you want to just reach out to me, ask me a question, just email me, 1kdaysober.com. Ah, at gmail.com. Much love, everybody. Bye.